0: Father, we do praise you, we praise your son, Jesus Christ, upon whom we rest. He is our only hope, he is our source of righteousness, he is the solid rock upon which we can stand. And Father, we thank you. God, we ask now that as we come to your word, as we come to your word, Lord, would you prepare our hearts, would you soften our hearts, would you sharpen our minds, would you open our eyes, Father even this morning as we begin a new series a new series on your on your your good design for us on, on sexuality gender and the gospel father these are these are important topics these are difficult topics these are sensitive topics Lord we need your grace to hear them we need your grace to hear them with ears that can hear, eyes that can see. Father, give me a mouth that will speak your truth from your heart. To to speak the truth in love, to speak the truth with grace from your heart. So God, help us to, to humble ourselves before your word. God, help us to receive your word in meekness and a trust you. We ask these things in the name of your son. Amen. You can take your seats. Well, this morning we are starting a new series called God's Good Design, Sexuality, Gender, and the Gospel. And now, in general, uh, I believe the the best way to feed and mature God's people is by the expositional preaching of God's word, verse by verse. Uh, So I I look forward to jumping back into a book of the Bible uh, that we can study from beginning to end. I look forward to that, but from time to time, I believe it is helpful. I believe it's helpful to stop and look into God's word, not just from verse to verse, not just in one book, but to look into God's word from cover to cover and to ask what God says about a certain topic or theme, or issue. And undoubtedly, one of the most pressing challenges we face today as Christians is the issue of sexuality and gender. Uh, for, for many reasons, uh, questions of sexuality and gender are, are difficult to address, uh, but this is not an issue that the church can ignore. Uh, this is not an issue that Christians can hide from. This is not an issue that parents can shelter their kids from forever. If, if I as a pastor and we as a church do not instruct and disciple you from a biblical perspective on these matters, you will be discipled by others. You, you are constantly being taught, formed, shaped, and discipled by the movies you watch, the music you listen to, the stories you read, and the images you see from social media. And so I recognize that in today's day and age, you will either be discipled by the word or you will be discipled by the world. And so that's why we're having this series on sexuality and gender this morning. Uh, But I also want to say at the outset that as Christians, we cannot just talk about sexuality and gender. Sexuality and gender may be the issue of our day, but the gospel is the issue for all of eternity. God says in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is of first importance. And so we, we need to talk about sexuality and gender in light of the gospel, in light of the gospel. And so I'm eager to, to teach you, to equip you with, with what God's word says about this. But, but I, also, I also approach this with fear and trembling because I know I know that many who walk away from Christ often take their first step or sometimes their biggest step away from the Lord because of this issue. Because of this issue in their own hearts or because of this issue in the, in the life of a friend, a family member a loved one and so i approach this topic with with pause and caution because of that but also because this this is a, a an issue that's deeply uh, personal to me god's brought many people into my life whom i love and care deeply about who have struggled tremendously in this area so so i approach this on a personal level with with pause and caution as well but I, just by, by way of introduction to, to maybe share some background. Uh, my, my first personal encounter with, with this question of sexuality came just a couple months after I started college. A friend I'd met during uh, orientation that summer at UCLA, uh, a couple months after we started school, he asked if we could talk. And, and he had told me previously that he was a Christian, and so I kept inviting him to church, um, but he never came. And finally, that day, a couple months after we, we started school, he, he asked me, to go to lunch, and and he told me over lunch. He said, "Tranway, I am gay." And he said he had been miserable when he tried to fight this, and and he he didn't want this feeling. He tried to fight it, but now that he embraced it, he was finally happy. And God wants us to be happy, right? And and he eventually walked away from the faith. Uh, later that same year, my first year of college, I I was involved in a, a great church and a great campus ministry, and there was a guy who was just a year older than me who in some ways, informally discipled me. I looked up to him in many ways. He, he knew the Bible. He knew theology. He, he loved people well. I knew he prayed for me because we would we'd have lunch from time to time, and he would ask me, hey, how are you doing with that one prayer request you asked me to pray for two months ago? I had forgotten my own prayer request, but he had been praying for me. That's the kind of guy he was. And, and I learned how to share the gospel from him. We'd go around on campus talking to people just randomly between class to try to share the gospel and at the end of my first year of college, he told me he too struggled with, with homosexuality. But he said he fought against those feelings. He fought against those things and, 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 and when he was walking closely with Christ, he, those, those temptations went away and, and after he graduated, his, his, his desire, his plan was to, to be a missionary. Um, but, but a couple years after college, all that changed and he Started with baby steps, but eventually walked away and ran away from the Lord. While I was in college, I was discipling some younger guys in a small group. One of the most faithful guys there shared with the whole group about his struggle with homosexuality. It was like, man, what is going on? And and he he fought against this, and he pursued Christ, and he asked for prayer and accountability. And today he's he's still walking with the Lord. In fact, he's he's married with with children. As a youth pastor, I've had students struggle with this. I, I, I think of one dear, dear believer who was, who was discouraged and struggling to the point of walking away, but God held that person fast. And that individual is still walking with the Lord today, married with children as well. But there are still others who struggle. There are others who fight. There are others who remain faithful to Christ and they remain single and their lives are a monument to the goodness of God and the worthiness of Christ. Why do I share all that? I share that because I want you to understand that this is not a distant theoretical issue for me. I have had to wrestle with this up close and personally. I'm not approaching this as a political issue out there. This is not about a political issue out there. This is a a personal issue. This is a pastoral issue for me. And I hope for you. Well, many of you have probably already faced these things, and if you haven't, it's only a matter of time. And, and I want to ask you what are you going to say, or what have you said? What will you say when someone says to you, But isn't God a God of love? Doesn't God want me to be happy? I was born this way, and I'm not hurting anyone else, so how can this be wrong? What would you say to these questions? In in God's providence, I had to wrestle with these as a relatively young believer. And I'm I'm glad that I had to walk through the crucible of facing these questions. And and it drove me to the Bible. And I, I praise God because the scriptures are clear. The Bible is clear. The Bible is enough. The Bible is true. And best of all, the Bible is good because God is good. The Bible has the answers to the toughest questions. The Bible is not scared of our questions. The Bible is not scared of our struggles. And so, I want you to hear these things up front, that we're going to the scriptures to find answers, but not answers that are just cold, hard facts, but answers that come from the warm and loving heart of a good God. And just a couple more introductory comments before we begin. You know, for Christians, and some of you have heard me say this before, but just to highlight this again, for Christians, there are typically two responses that the world gives you. The world gives us as Christians two options for how to respond to, to, to the questions of sexuality and gender, to the LGBT, and, and sometimes people add on the Q and other, other letters. Uh, the, the world gives Christians two ways to respond to these LGBTQ issues. The world says you can compromise or you can show contempt. Those are, the, those are the options they give us. Compromise means this. You need to say to someone else, I agree with you and I love you. That's a compromise for believers. I agree with you, and I love you. The world says that option is available to you, and in fact, that's the one we would prefer. The world says, but if you don't do that, then what you are choosing is contempt, which says, I disagree with you, and I hate you. Christian, you choose compromise or contempt. I agree with you and I love you or I disagree with you and I hate you and I stand before you today and I want to make sure you hear this as believers. We must choose a different way, the way not of compromise or of, of, of contempt, but the way of compassion where you say to someone with love and even tears in your eyes, I disagree with you, but I love you. I disagree with you, but I love you. And because I love you, I cannot agree with you. I cannot affirm you in what would harm you and what would hurt you in what would condemn you. I disagree with you, but I love you. And, and friend, I, I want you to understand, if, if we have contempt on somebody else, if, if, if there are seeds of contempt in your heart where you say, I disagree with you and I hate you, I despise you, if that is in your heart, contempt always goes hand in hand with self-righteousness. Jesus makes that point clear in Luke 18 where he tells the parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee. He says, as the setup to that, he told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and had contempt on others. As believers, we must never trust in our own righteousness, and therefore we must never have contempt on others. We are no better than anyone else. And and if you have your Bibles, I trust you do, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I think this is a good verse to just start us off in terms of a heart posture and attitude as we talk about these things. This is actually one of only three passages in the New Testament that explicitly reference homosexuality. In 1 Timothy chapter one, Paul is writing to Timothy and he he gives a a vice list as they're called, a a list of sins. And, And notice Homosexuality is not the only thing on the list. There are many sins on this list. It's not listed first or last, it's just right in the middle. Paul lists this. He says in verse 8 Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I just want you to notice there, it, it, he, he lists it there as, as a sin. In the very next section, though, Paul begins to give his testimony, his personal testimony of how he came to know Christ. And and I want you to jump down to verse 15. After giving his testimony, he says this amazing statement in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Perhaps you're familiar with another translation of this that says, I am the chief of sinners. Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. I am the most sinful of all sinners. I want you to think about this for a moment. He had just listed a bunch of sins. And after the end of it, he says, and I'm the worst. I'm the foremost of them all. I'm the chief of them all. Well, one pastor, Denny Burke, when he was preaching on this very topic from this very text, it has stuck with me years later. He said, as Christians, we must always carry around this, this conviction that we are the worst sinner. We're never looking down on anybody else. We're always coming and saying, I'm worse. Well, you, you may not be objectively Hitler reincarnated, I hope, but, but you carry around this humility that says, I am but nothing before the Lord. I am a sinner. Even on my best days, even on my best days, I am the chief of sinners. Friends, that kind of attitude is missing from too much Christian talk. The world needs to hear that. The world needs to see that. The world needs to sense that we believe that in our bones. That I'm the chief of sinners and so are you. It's a trustworthy saying. That means anybody can say it, and it's true for everybody. Paul's the chief of sinner. So are you. So am I. And when we carry this mindset, this changes the whole paradigm. So not compromise, not contempt, but compassion. I love you, but I disagree with you. But I'm no better than you. Lastly, I know there are some of you here who maybe have questions Maybe you disagree with what I'm going to say. Maybe you know what the Bible says and you disagree with it. You hate it. You're hurt by it. Maybe you've been hurt by, by Christians because of this issue. Maybe it took a lot of courage for you to even be here this morning. And I want to say thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for listening. Where, wherever you are, I, I'm... I am not speaking from a position of perfection. I'm not speaking from a position of condemnation, but from the fellow position, the position of a fellow sinner who sins in my own ways, and my sins are just as wicked. Thank you for being here. And, and for the times that the church has not spoken well on this or handled this well, in the times that Christians have maybe given off an air of contempt rather than compassion, I'm sorry. I want you to hear afresh what the God of all grace, the God of all goodness, the God who will not ignore sin, but the God who forgives sin, what he says to you. So our starting point this morning might seem a little odd. We're not starting first with homosexuality or or transgenderism. We're not even starting with God's original good design for men and women in marriage. No, we, we actually need to start at a far more fundamental level than that. We need to start by talking about the goodness of God. We need to start by talking about the goodness of God. And so the, the series title is God's Good Design, Sexuality, Gender, and the Gospel, but the sermon title for this morning to start our time off is Beginning with God and His Goodness. Beginning with God and His Goodness. We need to start there with the goodness of God too often we talk about sexuality and gender from a man-centered starting point we need to talk or we talk primarily in a negative sense what what God forbids what God condemns and and we need to and we will go there but, but the right place to begin is where the Bible begins and the Bible begins with God all the way back in Genesis 1 it begins with God and his goodness and so I've got three points for this morning three points the first two will be brief Lord willing I know that was a lengthy introduction, but my time starts now, so now I'm kidding. Uh, three points for this morning. First, recognize the authority of God, rest in the wisdom of God, trust in the goodness of God. I couldn't think of a third R, so, you know. Recognize the authority of God, rest in the wisdom of God, trust in the goodness of God. I guess you could say rejoice in the goodness of God. Anyway, forget it. First recognize the authority of God. Recognize the authority of God. Start all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And and we'll flip to a few other places, but we're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 this morning. All the way back in Genesis 1, the first verse, I hope is very familiar to you. Genesis 1, 1 reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me just pause there. That first verse is foundational. God is the creator, and everything is about him and not about us. God is the one who made all things, and so therefore God has the rights to all things. God has authority over all things because he made everything. You understand this principle. The creator of something has the rights to that thing. A a musical artist who writes a song performs that song, they own that song. That is theirs. They have the rights over it. God, as the creator, owns all things. He has authority over all things. And you see this reaffirmed throughout the scriptures. You can either turn there or just listen. Psalm 24, verse 1. Psalm 24, verse 1, the word of God reads thus. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You hear that? The the earth is the Lord's. It it all belongs to him. The fullness of the earth thereof and the the world and those who dwell therein, it all belongs to the Lord. Why? Verse 2 says, for or because he has founded it, he created it, he established it upon the rivers. It all belongs to him. He's the owner because he made it. And in fact, not only does he own it all, it's all about him. Uh, You can think of it this way. If you ever want to get some 411 about the purpose of the universe, some info, some 411. You know, is that a thing anymore? Growing up, 411 was like the info. Anyway, if you want the info on the universe, 411. Think Revelation 411. Revelation 411. The word of God says, worthy are you. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God made everything, and therefore he is worthy of all worship, all glory, all honor, God made the world so He rules over it, God made the world so he's worthy of all things. He is the point of the universe. not us, not our fulfillment, not our joy. He's the point of it all. He's the one in authority. And so the first point this morning is recognize the authority of God, and, and this is so key because we live in an anti-authority age, don't we? We live in an anti-authority age. We don't like authority. But, but God's authority is a good authority. It, if we were thinking rightly, this is the kind of God that we would want. We would want a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, yet who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. This is the kind of God we would want. And, and this is the starting point, that God has all authority. And some people find Christianity offensive for all kinds of reasons. I uh, Specifically this morning, we can think of, of this. People find Christianity offensive because of its stance on sexuality. But that is not the most offensive claim of the Bible. That's not the most offensive claim of the Bible. The most offensive claim of the Bible is that God is God. And he's in charge. David Platt puts it this way. The most offensive claim in Christianity is that God is the creator owner, and judge of every person on the planet. Every one of us stands before him guilty of sin, and the only way to be reconciled to him is through faith in Jesus, the crucified Savior and risen King. All who trust in his love will experience everlasting life, while all who turn from his lordship will suffer everlasting death. Friends, that's the most offensive claim of Christianity. That God is God. He's the creator, the owner, and the judge. If that's true, everything else makes sense. What he says goes. What he says is the rule. Do you recognize the authority of God this morning? We need to start there. But we can't end there. Not only do you need to recognize the authority of God, you need to rest in the wisdom of God. Rest in the wisdom of God. By wisdom, I mean that God is able to accomplish his desired end perfectly. You know people who might have good intentions but cannot carry them out. I have good intentions to cook things for my family, but I do not have the means to carry them out. I lack wisdom in so many areas. Good intentions, no wisdom to get it done, no ability to get it done. God is not so. What he wants to do, he will do. He will accomplish it perfectly because he has perfect wisdom. I I want you to see this in Genesis 1. It's so fascinating once you see this. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I want you to notice the two words that that are used to describe creation right there. It, it, It was without form. And void. There's two problems. He created the universe, but it was without form, and it was void. There was chaos rather than order, and it was empty rather than full. So guess what he does on the six days of creation? The seventh, he rests. Uh, on the six days of creation, what did he do? Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, there was morning. The first day he separated the light from the dark. He gave order. He gave form. It was without form, he's giving it form. Days one, two, and three, he is giving order to the chaos. Day, Day two, look at verse six. And let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. Look at all this separation. This is forming order. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, oh, well, let me me pause there. So day two, he separates the waters in the heavens from the waters below. He's creating order. It was without form. He's giving it form. Day three, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters earth. Uh, that were gathered together he called seas. God saw that it was good. And then he fills that land with plants and vegetation. So day three, he is giving form to the earth. He's giving form to the seas and the land. So he's giving form on days one, two, and three. Well, guess what he does in days four, five, and six? He fills it. Formless and void gives form and he fills it. Day four, he fills what he made in day one. Separate the light from the darkness, day four, he makes the sun, moon, and stars to fill up those spaces. Day five, what does he do? He creates the birds to fill the heavens and the fish to fill the seas. He fills what he had formed on day two. Day six, he fills what he formed on day three. He fills the land with animals and then his crowning jewel of creation, mankind. It was without form and void and God... In his infinite wisdom, gave it form and then filled it. Not only that, he wanted to make man in his own image. You know these verses well. Genesis 1, look at verse 20, uh, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth, over all, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. He wanted mankind to image him forth and to fill the earth. And so how did he do this? He made man in his image and he made them male and female that they might multiply and fill the earth. He made man to accomplish that which he wanted them to do. He wants them to fill the earth, so he makes them in a way where they're able to do that. He has his ends and his desires, and in his wisdom, he sets things just so to accomplish those ends. God uses his power with purpose to accomplish his ends. There is wisdom here. God is not some unthinking ogre who has all power but no wisdom. But these two things, authority and wisdom, are not enough. Dictators, terrifying dictators can have both authority and wisdom, but they use their wisdom for wicked ends, for evil rather than for good. Authority and wisdom are not enough, and this is where the third one is so important. This is where we will spend the rest of our time, rejoice in the goodness of God, trust in the goodness of God. We flew over some words there that come up again and again in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, verse 4, God saw that the light was good. Look down at verse 10. The waters that were gathered together, he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. You look at verse 12, the end of verse 12, and God saw that it was good. You look at verse 18. And God saw that it was good. You go all throughout this chapter, everything God makes, he says it was good. It was good. It was good. In fact, after day six, and you know this well, after day six, you look at the very end of chapter one, verse 31, and God saw everything he had made. He looked at everything and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Everything God made is good because God is good. Because God is good. You know, and we, we talk about how God put you know, man in a, in a beautiful garden. And, and, and in chapter 2, we, we see this kind of zeroing in, this zooming in on how God made man. And, and, he, and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and says, don't eat from this one tree. And, and, and sometimes we focus on this one tree business. Like, man, why did God say they can't eat of that one tree? Ah, oh, why these rules? But I want you to look more closely. I want you to look more closely. Look, look at uh, Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Let me pause there. Did you, did you hear that? You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. And who planted this garden? God. God planted this garden for Adam and says, you can eat of every tree. Have you ever walked through just a beautiful garden and thought, wow, this is amazing? It says, you can eat of every tree. There's just one, just one that you cannot eat from. The question comes up here, will Adam and Eve trust God? Will they trust him? You see, this this bounty of goodness, eat from every tree. They simply need to trust him and therefore obey him. How good is this? God is a a giving God. He is an overabounding, overflowing fountain of blessing. That is his nature. He creates not out of need. He doesn't need something from man. He doesn't need man to serve him. He doesn't need man to fulfill him. He creates in order to bless and to give and to bless and to give. God is a giving God. That's his nature. He doesn't need anything from us. He's self-sufficient. And he gives all the trees for Adam and Eve to eat. But I want you to think about this. What was at the heart of the temptation of the first sin? When Satan came up to Eve to tempt her, what was at the root of that? Did he attack the wisdom of God? Did he attack the authority of God? Or did he attack the goodness of God? Look at Genesis 3. There's, there's so much here. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now let me, let me pause there. Do you see how subtle this is? You may not eat of one tree and one tree alone. That's it, is what God said. Satan comes in and almost—he he doesn't completely negate it. He gives kind of a half truth. He twists it. He distorts it in the form of a question. Did God actually say, "You shall not eat of of any tree in the garden"? What's the subtext behind that? You, you know, you, you understand when some when people ask you a question, sometimes there's a question behind the question. You understand that? Every husband said, "Amen." Sometimes there's a question, but it's not about the question. It's the question behind the question. And the question behind the question here is not, what what did God say? Just fact-checking here, just making sure. No, the question behind the question is, is God good? Is God holding out on you? Is God stingy? Did Did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? That is Satan's ploy. Not necessarily to get you to first doubt the authority of God or to first doubt the wisdom of God, but the first temptation is to get you to doubt the goodness of God. Because if you don't think He's good, then His authority is not one to be submitted to, His wisdom is not one to be trusted, instead, it is one to be rebelled against. Is God good? is the fundamental foundational issue. The original lie. God does not love us. God does not love you. God is holding out on you. That's the original lie. He doesn't start by questioning the rule, per se. He certainly does in his words, but the question behind the question, he is trying to poison the relationship. Sinclair Ferguson, in his in his book, The Whole Christ, which is just one of my favorite books, In the whole Christ, he talks about this very fact that that the, the, the temptation was to doubt the goodness of God. And he says this, though, the antidote to that. Sinclair Ferguson, quote, the gospel is designed to deliver us from this lie. For it reveals that behind and manifested in the coming of Christ and his death for us is the love of a father who gives us everything he has. First his son to die for us and then his spirit to live within us. Friend, do you trust him? Go back to Genesis 3. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the the woman says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Correct. But then she adds to it, neither shall you touch it lest you die. You see, Satan's seed of doubt has crept in. She's added some more to this command. She's added a little bit more that makes it just sound a little more negative, a little more harsh. I can't even touch it. Satan's doubt, the seed of doubt, has taken root and has sprouted in her heart. But the serpent said to the woman, Now, now after he sees that the hook has been set, now he goes for it. Verse 4: But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now, but notice this. He doesn't just say because God is wrong that God lied about the outcome. That's not where he goes. Instead, he attacks yet again the character and heart of God. Why will you not die? Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. No, 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 no. Eve, you don't understand. The reason why he gave you that rule is because he's holding out on you because he is stingy, because he is not generous, because he is harsh, because he is selfish. If you want anything in this life, you've got to take it for yourself. If you want any joy in this life, you've got to break his commands to get it because true happiness is locked away behind his rules and he won't give you any of it. You've got to take it by force. Do you see how this is at the heart of all these questions of sexuality and gender. God's laws are not for you. They're against you. They're holding out on you. And by the way, it's interesting because he says, you will be like God. She had forgotten she's already made in the image of God. She already has that great privilege of being made in the image of God, but she wants more. She's forgotten her blessings and she wants more. Friend, I want to ask you this morning: have you succumbed to that lie? That God is not good? Do you come to church begrudgingly thinking, I have to come because that's what God commands, and I hate coming? Because that guy talks too long and gets too loud. But I gotta come because that's what God requires, and uh otherwise he'll zap me with a thunderbolt later this week in Sacramento. Flood my house. So I gotta come because God's not good. Where do you come to church? With the words of Peter, where else will we go, Lord? You have the words of life. Where else will we go, God? All blessing comes from you and you alone. There's no good. If there's no God, there's no good. It all comes from you. I'm here not to give. I'm here to receive your grace. I'm here to receive blessing. I'm here to receive you, God, because you are my great treasure. I want you. Amen. Is that your heart this morning, or have you believed the lie God is holding out on you? Perish the thought. Damn that lie to hell. God is good he is good and he does good so you can trust him just just listen to a few more passages here psalm sixteen eleven psalm sixteen eleven I love this psalm sixteen eleven David says to the Lord you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forever. When God says, don't go down that path. It's because you and I think there's joy at the end of that path, but he knows there's destruction and death. When he says, repent and turn around and come back to me, it's not because he's trying to prevent you from getting joy. It's because he wants you to come back to himself where there is fullness of joy. Not the mirage of joy. With God, there is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forever, and He shares, He gives, He pours forth. Some of you are, remember one of Jesus' best known parables, the, the parable of the prodigal son. One of my favorites. If you don't know it, it, Jesus tells this parable of a father who has two sons, and the younger son essentially says to the father, I don't love you, I hate you, I wish you were dead. Give me my share of the inheritance so I can go have fun because it ain't here. I want to enjoy life and it ain't here. Give me my stuff so I can go have my life. He goes, squanders it all in loose living. There's a famine that hits and he is down and out destitute. In that moment, the thought that comes to his mind in Luke 15, you can read this later, in Luke 15, the turning point for him to come back he's he's bent over trying to fight the pigs for the food they have because he's starving. And he says, he remembers even my father's hired hands, my father's hired servants had more than enough. The, the, The people that should have just been paid minimum wage, essentially, had more than enough. He remembered his father's goodness. He remembered his father's generosity and kindness. And that's what drove him to come back. How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough? And here I am. What am I doing? He says, I'll go back to my father and say, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, but I'll just be your slave because they have it better than I do. I'll just be your slave. And and you know the story. When he is going home, He's he's on his way back. Before he gets back home, the father has been looking. He's been looking for a son. He sees him down the road, and he runs to him to embrace him because he's wanted him to come home. He pursues him. He loves him. And before the son can give his, his speech, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, the father says, hush. Servants, bring out the best robe. Bring the fatted calf, for this son of mine was dead, and he is found again. He welcomes him home with open arms. Do you see the goodness of God? Do you see the kindness of God? We have drunk too deeply of the lie that God is some stingy Scrooge up there. Friend, what is the ultimate way, though, that we have seen God's goodness? What's the ultimate way we have seen God's goodness? It's what God did for us on the cross, isn't it? Our greatest need, our greatest need is not, it's not sexual fulfillment, is not material goods. Our greatest need is to have our sins wiped clean before a holy and righteous God. Our greatest need is to be brought back home to the Father, we who have, who have run away, we who have been estranged from the Father. Our greatest need is reconciliation. Our greatest need is salvation. Our greatest need is redemption from our sins and it cost us more than we could ever give. It cost us more than we could ever give and God is the only one who could pay it and he did by sending Jesus to die on the cross. Let me read for you Romans 8, 31 and 32. Romans 8, verses 31 and 32, the word of God says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God didn't send an angel. God didn't send an archangel. God didn't send one son of five. He sent his one and only son. His son whom he loves. His son whom he has loved before the foundation of the world. His son who is of himself. He gave his most precious. He gave his all. For you and for I. It says there, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, who crucified him for us all, who crushed him for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Graciously give us all things. Friend, if he has given you Jesus, he will not withhold anything good for you. If he withholds it, it's for your good and for my good. We're going to struggle on this side of heaven. Things are not right in this world. Things are not right in our bodies. Things are not right in our hearts. Things are not right in our minds. Things are not right in our hearts and desires. But we can trust that God is good. We need to recognize his authority. We need to trust his his wisdom. We need to rejoice in his goodness. All of this. And this is foundational because if you don't start here, then his commands make no sense. His design can be broken. But if God is good and God is wise and God is is the one in authority, then we follow him not because we have to, but because we should want to. Because this is the path of blessing. This is where there's fullness of joy. Recognize the authority of God. Rest in the wisdom of God. Trust in the goodness of God. I want to close with just this, this, this quote from Charles Spurgeon that ties this all together. Charles Spurgeon said said it this way: God is too good to be unkind, and He is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace His hand, we must trust His heart. When you cannot trace His hand, when you do not understand His ways, when you do not understand what He is doing, you trust His heart because He is too good to be unkind. And he's too wise to be mistaken. Brothers and sisters, as we consider God's good design for sexuality, gender, and the gospel, we need to start here. We need to begin with God and his goodness, his abounding and infinite goodness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thankful, humbled, grateful. God, thank you that you are good. Father, help us to not succumb to the lie that you're not. Help us to see through the lie, to see through the fog, and to know that you are good, and you pour forth blessing, and your greatest blessing is yourself, that we might know you and love you and be with you forever. Oh, Lord, help us to put aside all sin and the false promises it gives. Help us to trust in you. Father, we thank you for this time your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, uh, just so you know, as we go through this series, which will, will last for probably about seven weeks or so, if you have questions, please reach out. Please talk to me. Send me a note. Send me an email. Come find me. Uh, I know these are difficult topics, and I want to be available, so please, please feel free to reach out. Now, before the closing benediction, just to remind you to clear out quickly afterwards and to, to leave some room for our Mandarin brothers and sisters to come in, and I hope you stay dry out there. I, we hear the rain. Uh, if you'd all stand with me. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 16 to 17. The word of God says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. Go in peace.